Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Prime Minister continually pressed as to when a COVID-19 vaccination will arrive and why we are behind the rest of the world. Once we do get a vaccination, finally to the shores of Canada, how do we roll it out? And a local musician is doing what he can to help out those during a global pandemic as we reintroduce you to COVID Elvis. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The weekend is here. Time to gather the family, sit around the dock, and sing Kumbaya! But no holding hands! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Ah. We got to fit that in. I wasn't sure we would. Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. And with us now, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, not too bad. How are you holding up? I'm pretty good. It's just a mat. It's kind of like riding a roller coaster here, isn't it, Isaac? Yeah. I mean, we're up, we're down. It's it's all over the place. But what are your thoughts about uh, the vaccination situation? I know this was, you know, uh, some optimism for for many Canadians as we head into a long winter. What are you, what are your thoughts on where we are right now? Well, I think there's a couple points. One is that yeah, there there really are vaccines that are going to be deployed uh, in many parts of the planet really soon like we're probably going to see vaccine programs start to roll out in the united states at around christmas maybe even a little bit earlier the second thing is that yeah we've got access to them in canada but no one's really quite sure when they're going to land on our soil but you know everything we're hearing it sounds like sometime in the first quarter of 2021 is is reasonable to at least get the first batch and if that actually happens i'd count that as a success given that we don't make them here and we're relying on others to make them and then ship them to us and then the third thing is that buys us time. It buys us time to unfortunately screw things up and make this virus worse in Canada. So we've got to completely stick to the game of, of adhering to our fundamental public health principles to keep ourselves, our families, our community safe. But it also buys us time to figure out how we're going to actually deploy these vaccines to at risk and the neediest of the needy groups first. You know, it's, it's the logistics are real. Minus 80 for one, minus 20 perhaps for another. So so I think there's a lot to do in the in the in the months ahead. We certainly all know or have just realized. I, I think uh, this is a surprise w- when the prime minister came out and said the other day that you know no we're not going to be we're going to be behind when, when questioned why we were behind the United States and such he 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 casually mentioned that we don't produce these anymore and they're going to give them to their own citizens before us. I think that stunned a lot of Canadians, uh, and, and we're slowly finding out we don't produce them. And you know there's lots of blame I guess there at, at the end of the day, but but still even with the scenario that. Canada finds itself in with the inability to produce them, although now we're hearing that there is some production availability if we do get the licensing. So again, we're not really sure what's happening there. But but even with not manufacturing these, is there still not a way to have gotten them here sooner or, or certainly a lot more than what we're seeing? Well, honestly, I don't know, right? Yeah. Because we saw the same thing happen with personal protective equipment. There was a tremendous global shortage of PPE in March and April. 
and everyone was fighting for their own PPE and clinging to their own PPE and not letting it be shipped elsewhere. And, you know, we were in a pinch in Canada because we at that time didn't have the capacity to make what we needed in a short period of time. Now, eventually we shift gears and now there's a lot of Canadian production of this, but that doesn't happen overnight. Um, so same with vaccine production. Sure, we could probably make a little bit here. There certainly is. It's not like we have zero capacity. But again, it, it requires decades of investment and in infrastructure development to do this. Um, so I don't think it's realistic that we're going to be able to make our own supply of this anytime, anytime soon in any meaningful manner. And we are going to rely on others. But like, let's just bring it on back down to planet Earth for a second. We don't make this here. We're not going to make this here in a meaningful amount anytime in the foreseeable future. We are going to be relying on other countries to do so. And, you know, I, obviously we want to get this as soon as possible. We want to make sure they're safe and effective, blah, blah, blah. But we also want to get the safe and effective vaccines. Like if we get it at some point in the next three-ish months, I think that's, like, that's pretty reasonable. And even if we get a small batch of it, it can go a long way. We keep hearing that we need... You know, 60 or 70 percent of the population to be vaccinated to get herd immunity. Yes, important, true. And we'll take about a year to do that. But even if we get a first batch of vaccines, however many that is, if we just blitz through long term care and vaccinate as many people as we can in long term care, automatically that takes care of the most vulnerable of our vulnerable. And the deaths in Canada from this virus will significantly improve. It's not going to go away, but will significantly improve. But also our health care capacity will also improve. Many, not all, but many people hospitalized are getting sick in long-term care. And it just takes the strain off of our healthcare system. So even with a limited supply of vaccine early on, we can do a tremendous amount of good long before we reach herd immunity. So listen, if we get them in the first quarter of 2020, personally, I count that as a win. I know there's a lot of skeptics and people that won't, but I, I think that would be a win for Canada. Uh, how is it a win when everyone else is rolling theirs out before Christmas? I think it's like we're settling as opposed to, I think we're lowering our standards or lowering the bar as opposed to, or maybe it's just being realistic in this case, doctor. I, I mean, I, listen, I, I'm, everyone's going to have their opinions on this, but yeah. I just, I didn't, I, I, I didn't know. I don't know how we could expect anything better, right? We don't make it <laughs> like it's going to be made in Germany and the United States. Like and the UK, I think it's just unrealistic to think that they're going to just they're, they also have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people when you add up all the populations of people at need of the in, in, of this vaccine. Like, I just think it's unrealistic. They're going to say, you know what, let's send 38 million of these to Canada. Like that doesn't make a whole. But are there not other demand. are there not other countries that are in our scenario situation where perhaps don't make it, but are still ahead of Canada on this? And and we'll again, is That'd it less to do with good comparison? You know and, and again, is it less comparison. to do with the is it less to do with the production and manufacturing ability as opposed to the licensing or the deal that was signed? Uh, so honestly, I think we're going to be answering that question in August and looking in retrospect yeah. to see, OK, when did we actually get it? When did we start our programs? And how did comparable countries do, countries that don't produce this vaccine, that are of a similar socioeconomic status as Canada, and, and how did their vaccine programs roll out? I mean, that's a really good point, and I don't think that we'll, that's going to be a retrospective answer. We'll be the armchair quarterbacks for that, or the Monday morning quarterbacks mm. for that one.
Uh, in regard to the approval process, because the Prime Minister again was talking about this and making sure that it was safe for Canadians, but from what I understand and from what I've read, uh, the approval of this from Health Canada isn't so much the issue. It will be approved roughly the same time as the FDA uh, finalizes its approval for what is going on in the United States. Maybe a little bit of, of lag time there. That's not the issue of whether it's safe and whether it will be approved on time. The issue is really getting it into our hands, is it not? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the approval process is not going to, I doubt, will be the rate-limiting step. I, I would expect it not to be. It's just their job. They've And they've been receiving this data in real time. So it's not like they're just going to get a big dump of data uh, saying, okay, here's all our vaccine data. Have a look at it. it. Like Many of these companies have been having these rolling submissions where they're submitting data over time throughout the course of their clinical trial to shorten the approval time. I would be shocked if the uh, if the approval time from Health Canada was the rate-limiting step. And if it was, we would have some very serious questions to answer, or they would have some very serious questions to answer. I really think the rate-limiting step, let me rephrase this, I really hope the rate-limiting step is basically ensure, like, when vaccines land on our soil because of other people, not anything that we've done ourselves. Like, we should be figuring out how to deploy vaccines Toronto. Like how are we once they land on our soil, the lag time between the vaccines landing in Ontario, for example, and vaccine programs rolling out should be about one nanosecond, right? We should have this all aligned with what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, who's going to get it, and and how we're going to get it to those people. And um and you know, the approval process and we should this should not hopefully does not get in the way. Uh, so we, what we do know again that that first shipment will come in in that first quarter, January to March, and hope to have those three million doses or three million people vaccinated, six million doses by uh, by March. That's less than ten percent of the population. But you brought up the point, obviously, that this will go to long term care and those most vulnerable and in front line scenarios. How much of an impact will that have? on slowing this virus and reopening the the rest of of the country i think it will have a significant benefit i still think that we're going to be wearing masks and physically distancing uh for a while because it's going to take a while for vaccine programs to really roll out across the country such that a significant proportion of the population has access to it but by really targeting the most vulnerable of the vulnerable we're going to prevent death we're going to prevent hospitalization. We're going to relieve a lot of the pressure on the healthcare system just by targeting 3 million of the most vulnerable Canadians. Wow. Like, you know, the reason we're in lockdown, for example, in parts of Ontario is because our healthcare system was threatened to capacity and is being stretched beyond capacity in some areas. Like if we can avoid that because we can vac- vaccinate the people that are most likely to come to hospital, like we could really put some stop gaps in place before we have to lock down. I mean, it's it, this can be very, very helpful, even with a relatively small supply of vaccine, if it's administered in an appropriate manner to the appropriate people. All right. Your thoughts, doctor, on where we are, uh, again, continuing to rise cases across the country. We're not really seeing any signs of flattening at this point. Ontario reporting uh, a record uh, eighteen hundred and fifty five new cases today. Uh, and again, you know, we're watching on TV uh, reports of people uh, enjoying Black Friday and such and, and getting out of the malls. Your thoughts of where we are? Yeah, clearly not in the right area and 
And, you know, it's, it's interesting because we heard the modeling table yesterday say that they're, you know, this is a one-day peak. And, and, you know, obviously an eyebrow goes up when you have a record number of cases in a day. Clearly an eyebrow goes up. I think we also have to appreciate that there was a lot more tests that were done. Uh, that might not explain the whole thing. But, but really, I, I usually step back and look at the, the bigger trends, like the seven-day averages, the percent of tests that are positive, um, the number of tests that were done as well. Like, there's a lot of metrics to really look at. There may be signs that we are actually starting to flatten out despite seeing that spike in cases today. But even then, even if we are flattening out, flattening out and hovering it around, you know, 13 to 1,500 cases per day isn't sustainable. Like, that's going to result in, in hospitalizations, ICU care, death. Like, we, we really have to start doing things to drive the cases lower. So while we're in this period of lockdown in Peel and Toronto and, and other places are in the red, we really should be boosting our capacity to deal with the drivers of infection in the community, to boost our test, trace, and isolate capacity as well so that we can actually get the number to start lowering. Even if it's a small amount of lowering, a consistent lowering would be extremely helpful in the long run and will buy us time until vaccine deployment can really be widespread. So we have uh, areas, uh, obviously, pretty much of, of the greater Toronto-Hamilton area in the red zone. And obviously, as you mentioned, Peel and and Toronto in, in a lockdown in the gray zone. Um, but balancing with that are uh, holidays coming. We talked about Black Friday and, and what we're seeing on the shopping malls, uh, in the shopping malls. Uh, how concerned are you as we roll into the month of December? Very I'm very concerned. And, you know, we don't have to look far to see what can happen. We saw, well, a couple points. One is, I mean, there was a pretty real spike in cases as a result of um, as a result of uh, Thanksgiving in Canada. Like that, that didn't help. We, we did, you know, many people were responsible and did the right thing and other people got together. And I think it's pretty fair to say that there was a spike. Or are we going to see a spike now as a result of Diwali? Maybe. Are we going to see a spike uh, after Christmas, maybe. Are we going to see a spike because of the Christmas, uh, Hanukkah, uh, New Year's celebrations? Certainly possible. So I think uh, we've got to be careful here. And, and, you know, how do you do this, right? Obviously, everyone's fatigued. Everyone's annoyed with this, but we're, we're clearly not through yet. And I think we need, it's harder to do and harder to measure, but like good community engagement, like really good community engagement and really sound communication strategies that, that ultimately drive behavior, right? It's not enough to, you know, put up a commercial saying, wear a mask, spread apart. Like we've known that since March. Like how do you actually drive positive behavioral change? And the way you do that is with skilled communicators and communication experts in an age, language, and culturally appropriate manner on media and social media, and also through meaningful, really meaningful engagement with communities, with religious leaders, with community leaders, with business leaders. Like, there's a lot that we can do to help drive positive behavioral change, and we're really going to need it uh, until we see widespread vaccine deployment. Uh, we're talking about the various levels of lockdown and such. Uh, we are still seeing numbers creep up. Uh, you were saying, you know, you've got to, it will raise an eyebrow. You, you've got to be aware of that. That being said, what indicators are you seeing that, that, that this is starting to, starting to flatten a little bit, or are you seeing those? Well, yeah, it was interesting because yesterday we saw the presentation by uh, Dr. Brown uh, from the uh, modeling table who basically presented some data uh, showing that, you know, there might be some early indicators that we are seeing at least a slowing in the rate of new cases per day. Uh, you got to start somewhere. And if that's a real trend, fantastic. That would be a good start. 
uh, and we're not seeing, at least hopefully not seeing, uh, uh, exponential growth of this virus. Um, I'm not holding my breath, to be honest. I'm not holding my breath. We, because we had that spike in cases today that clearly raised an eyebrow, and ultimately at the end of the day, I want to see what the daily case counts look like over the next five to seven days. I want to look at the seven-day average. I want to look at all those other metrics to really have a, a, a more holistic view of, of where we're at as a province. Are Canadians as committed to the second wave as they were the first? We all know about the fatigue, but we do know the messaging. As you said about the masking, it's not like anybody doesn't know what to do here. We know what our what our job is. That and we're certainly seeing, you know, signs of, of people fraying around the edges, whether it's the barbecue place in Etobicoke or what have you. But that being said, uh obviously the majority of the Canadians are participating and in buying into the protocol. Are we as committed to the second wave? as we were the first? I think so. I really do. And I try to recognize that I live in a bubble and I basically my life stinks because I've just been working at home and the hospital and nowhere else. And, and I don't mm. truly have my hand on the pulse. But, you know, you see snippets in the news here and there. And, you know, occasionally they take the shackles off and I get to wander around and look at what's going on in the world around me. And I, I really think, you know, most Canadians are doing a great job, at least what I've been seeing. And yeah, you're going to get some fringe loonies that are, um, you know, uh, getting a lot of attention. But I mean, stuff like that, I think, is just is is uh, way blown way out of proportion into how the vast majority of Canadians are truly behaving. And I really think like everyone's everyone's doing what they can and 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 should be commended for this. And we're asking for a lot, right? Like people are giving up a lot: it's mental health, physical health financial health like there's just a there's a lot of that people are giving up to 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 get this under control and i'm not going to pretend it's easy on on any front but uh listen i think i think it's still we've still got a ways to go but you know i hate to you know everyone says oh there's light at the end of the tunnel but there really is a light at the end of the tunnel like 2021 is going to start on a lousy note we all know that but it's just going to get better and better and better uh, throughout the year. We're going to have vaccine rollout, which is going to be fantastic. And believe it or not, I think the weather's going to play a role as well. As it gets warmer, as we move into springtime, people are just going to be outside more. There's just going to be less contact with others. And that will also help as well as we saw uh, last year too. So there's going to be a couple of factors that are going to help us get these numbers under control. And maybe by late 2020, we'll start to have people at hockey games and you know, movies and art exhibits and stuff like that, reminiscent to 2019. Dr. Isaac Bogosh has been with us, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor, Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Isaac, thank you for the positivity. Thanks for the insight. Uh, be well. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, the Premier has wound up his daily news conference. Also heard from uh, the Prime Minister a little earlier on. Obviously, the Prime Minister speaking to the Premiers last night. Uh, the Premiers uh, giving the, the Prime Minister some pretty tough questions like, when is this going to arrive? Uh, how is it going to arrive? Uh, which one is going to arrive? And, and, and what are the quantities so they can plan on how to distribute this? Uh, what we do know, what we are hearing is that, uh, the first shipment will arrive sometime in the first quarter between January and February. That will be enough to vaccinate 3 million people. That, of course, less than 10% of the population. Uh, and, uh, Health Canada talking about, uh, working towards 60% of the, or sorry, uh, the majority of the population being, uh, 
uh, vaccinated by September. Uh, again, uh, the prime minister the other day in the uh, news conference seemed very matter of fact about all of this, yet it seems to be just stunning Canadians that uh, we are where we are. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, yes, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. So we certainly know where we are now that uh, we will uh, receive this vaccination after other uh, uh, developed countries. Uh, and, and that is due to the fact that we don't manufacture it anymore. Uh, that being said, we are where we are. What could the government have done considering where we are to speed up this process and guarantee we were going to get supply with the rest of the world? Um, it's, we're now sort of, um, this is after the fact, be, uh, because I think it's probably too late. I mean, the decisions have been made. We know that. And I'm talking decisions in the States and decisions in Europe, Germany, and so forth. But, uh, and it's, it may seem kind of crazy what I'm going to say, but way back in March, the moment the crisis hit, or, you know, a week or so after, there should have been somebody somewhere in the bureaucracy saying, okay, there's other people putting out the fire. I've got to start thinking about what are we going to do three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months from now. You know, Wayne Gretzky famously said, I use it in my class all the time, don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going to be. Yeah. And and that's not just being a jock, quoting, because I'm not even a hockey fan, to be frank, um, but a, it's a great, great quote. And and, it, and I teach strategy. It's an excellent point about strategy. With, with strategy, you're trying to envisage the future. You're trying to change the future. You're trying to say, where do I want to be my organization, my country, my company, my university? Where do I want it to be in 12 or 18 months from now? And yes, there's speculation, but there's also a lot of connecting the dots saying, well, you know, if I do this and I do this and I do this and I do that, then I can make that happen, that that. Uh, imagined reality occur. And I think that nobody was doing that back in March, April. They were so, everyone was so focused on the fire, the forest fire, the fires are burning out of control. You know, the virus is exploding. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Nobody was saying, and when you've got 300,000 people in the government of Canada, I think somebody could be asking that question. Okay, I'm going to go off in the little corner uh, called the strategic planning of the future corner, and you people go and fight the forest fire, and I'm going to think about the future and vaccines. And some people could say, you know, what are you talking about? There's not even a vaccine. We've got a forest fire. But somebody has to think about that, that down the road, that will happen. It's not that different from a general manager, you know, in the NFL saying, you know, uh, we've got a terrible year this year, but two years from now, this is where I want to be. And to get there, I've got to do some things next year at the draft. You know. So is this a contract? Thing. Is this a contracting issue then? Is that when they signed these deals, they didn't make sure when the delivery yeah. date was? They I didn't make so. sure that uh, that you know, even though because the prime minister boasts about how big the portfolio is, yeah. but didn't anybody ever think to ask when it would be delivered? Like I, I don't understand that disconnect. Like. Right. My sense is, uh, Scott, that they went in too late. Um, this is my judgment, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but I think what happened was when they finally did put in the order, the ask, the bid, whatever you want to call it, and they said, okay, we're going to go big because, you know, when you have more power, more purchasing, a bigger purchase, then you've got more market power, okay? But if you're going in after others have gone in ahead of you, then you're going to be at the back of the line. In other words, if we put that ask, that bid in back in March, April, May, when 
almost nobody else was even thinking about that and doing that, we probably would have been able to put the bid in and had accepted by the companies we were contracting with. And we could have specified the date and the whole nine yards and probably got exactly what we wanted. But back in March, most people weren't thinking about that. So but let I me ask you this then, Ian. Late. That's what I'm so, going to say. We went in with our contract demands late, and the Americans had already been there ahead of us, and they beat us to the punch, and so did the Germans and these other big countries. So obviously we don't produce it. We're at a disadvantage there. So how many other countries who are in the same situation as we are who, who don't produce it, how many of those are ahead of us in line? Who are the countries that are, are in a very similar situation to Canada, but still played it better than what we did? I, I don't have that data. Uh, I'll be very frank with you. I don't have that data. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's fair to say that the biggest countries, because they do have a lot of clout, <laughs> you know, um, and they have a lot of production capacity too. So I think the Chinas and the and the U.S. Uh, are going to be at the front of the line. Uh, I'm sure that Germany will be because they have deep, deep, deep uh, expertise. Uh, they're one of the big pharma producers in the world. Uh, along with the states. So I think Germany will be up there. So I'm telling you who are the winners. Um, uh, the Europeans, I think, and I'm, I'm, I, you're asking me to speculate, so I want to be, I, I, I normally only talk about data, I'm evidence-based, so right now I don't have the data. I'm speculating, but I have studied Europe a lot, and I've been to Europe many, many times teaching. And, uh, I mean, it's also 500 million people. Let's not forget that. And, uh, you know, they've got an enormous GDP. Aggregate is bigger than the U.S. And they have deep depth in pharmaceuticals. So I'm guessing that, so my educated guess is that even the smaller countries in Europe, I'm talking the Swedens and the Denmarks with four and five and six and seven million people, I'm guessing that the European agencies in Brussels would have done their to call it long-range strategic planning to make sure that everybody was not just the Germans, but that everybody in Europe was going to be... From what I understand, it's the entire European Union. That's my sense. That is yeah. my sense for yeah. sure. So it's going to be other countries, you know, Latin America will probably be at the back of the bus. Uh, Africa will be at the back of the bus. Uh, the poorer countries around the world will be at the back of the bus. Um, but I think, and, 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 and as I said, Central South America will probably not be at the front uh, of the line. But certainly Europe and the U.S. will be at the front of the line. They're going to be looked, they're going to be looked after first. And, so is uh, this lack of focus in your mind, Ian? Is, is this just not paying attention, keeping the eye on the ball, being aware of what needs to be done uh, in order to help Canadians? I, I want to resist the, uh, because I am a very strong critic of the Trudeau administration on their policies. At the same time, I don't want to be, you know, uh, yeah. uh, not responsible and bash them or anything. Uh, I think in this instance that back in March, and I remember it vividly, we all do, um, the shock was so great to everybody, including the policymakers, the decision makers. The shock was so great. It just came out of bloody nowhere, you know? Mm. And, and Yeah, and, that's fair. And, and we didn't know what was going, how much worse it was going to get. Of course, there were no solutions at the time. There were no, nobody was talking about it. I mean, we were talking about vaccines in the abstract. There was no, nothing in the pipeline. People weren't even talking about that. I mean, they figured it was way down the road. And, and so I think that people just didn't, they were so focused on the crisis and, you know, lockdowns and masks and, you know, and social distancing and so forth that nobody was saying, well, what about ha what happens when, when the, when the vaccine uh, occurs? there's going to be a scramble and a fight for that vaccine should i not put my dibs in there right now i don't think anybody was thinking in that context 
Uh, when do you think the when do you think the prime minister knew this information, Ian? Because again, when he mentioned this last week, it it was a bomb. I mean, Canadians yeah. were stunned. Even you know, I even had medical experts that were stunned at yeah. what he was saying. So when would he have known this, and and, and why not make this known to everybody yeah. as opposed to dropping this bomb? He knew it a lot sooner than we did. Obviously, prime ministers and presidents are privy to information that we don't ever get, and then they also get information that we get much later. Um, because that's the nature of their position at the top, the, the, the president or the prime minister and that sort of thing. But to your question, you know, this isn't exactly the same, but it's very—it's similar. And there's a rich a case study history now in the Harvard Business School of uh, catastrophic failures, uh, the Tylenol disaster, the, t- the poisoning uh, by some terrorist of Tylenol spiking the Tylenol bottles and killing some people mm-hmm. in Chicago 30 years ago, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, the BP oil spill, the Maple Leaf Listeria, and they've become case studies. And in every instance, there's a common theme, and I've read each of these case studies, and the common theme is when you, as a leader, are confronting bad news, whether it's your fault or not is not the point. That's irrelevant. The, 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 the lesson that's come through every time is get the information out as quickly as possible. Don't keep it in a box. Don't hide it in the back room because it's going to come out. And the longer you delay bringing it out and announcing it, then people, you lose credibility. People start to say, you're, you know, you're playing games with us. They don't trust you. Your credibility goes down. And so the, the, the message in these case studies is get the bad news out as fast as possible. Hold a press conference. Get out there and say, look, people, I've got bad news, but we are going to work assiduously night and day. We will no stone left unturned, all the cliches, to make sure that we overcome this, and we will keep you posted all the time with what's going on. And when you hide bad news, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. But the problem is, is when you hide it, and then it does come out, then people are shocked and say, well, why didn't you tell us this? So there's that problem. And then secondly, people don't trust you in future when you say something. So it hurts your political capital. So I don't think that that was the way to go. He should have, the moment he became available, you know, when I say the moment, within a day or two, he should have had a special press conference and said, look, people, I've got to bring this information to your attention. But that's not his nature. He, he he likes to keep things close to his to his vest, you know. And he doesn't do that. He's not a even though he's very good, you know, doing the media. He's not a transparent person. You look at his record. You know, they're trying to suppress information. They're trying to suppress information about the uh, the pension plan for public servants by burying it in the documents. And 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 they it's not an, a, a government that is well known for transparency. And it I think it's going to hurt him. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the vaccination and when it will arrive in conversations between the premiers and the prime minister. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, Scott. Same to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had COVID Elvis on uh, a while ago, and and this I think it turned up on my Facebook feed somewhere, and and there he was uh, when everybody this was in the first wave everybody was battening down the hatches 
uh, COVID help us would drive around and just start ente- uh, entertaining people. And we do it a lot in the uh, long-term care in the seniors' homes uh, before COVID. And obviously, when that stopped, uh, he had to change how he did things. And he's really turned this into something as he continues to uh, to raise food uh, on this mission that he is on. And we want to uh, introduce you to uh, Cameron Caton, uh, a.k.a. COVID Elvis. Cameron, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Very well. Thank you for having me, Scott. So, again, talk about when this first started, how it all happened. Well, it was a simple driveway request to come sing for a lady who couldn't celebrate her birthday. And from it, um, some other things happened. And the next thing you know, I had this big, big, huge, long name, which, uh, you know, it was the Cameron 19, COVID-19 Cameron singing from his van and all that other stuff. It, it yeah. evolved. It evolved. It evolved into the COVID Elvis Basic uh, Food Drive and uh, Basic Human Essentials Tour. Sorry, the COVID Elvis Food Drive and Basic Human Essentials Tour. That's it turned into that. And uh, when we spoke, I had just was just on the start of everything. So, what have you done since then? Tell bring us up to date, up to speed. Okay, so um, since. Since April, uh, 18th was the first time I ever dropped off any food to the Good Shepherd. Uh, Since that time, um, I've done over 200 food drive tour appearances, as we call them. Um, And I'm just under 2,000 pounds, under 30,000 pounds in seven months. That is unbelievable, Cameron. Uh, Any idea when this started that it would balloon the way that it has? Um, no, because it's kind of branched off into all kinds of other endeavors. And I'll touch on them really quickly with you. Um, we put together cinch bags for um, women's shelters with all kinds of basic human essentials for her and them. Then we went on to um, drop off food to the tent city people. We've separated kid-friendly snacks for kids. Recently, we started dropping off at high school hundreds of pounds of food. Um, from there, we bought some backpacks to put a things together for homeless people as the weather turned colder but realized we have 55 items to put in them that we went out and bought larger duffel bags um and we're just currently doing that now we uh, did a toy drive last week out in burlington outside of gator ted's and um so i not being a mathematician but quickly kind of got everything together and we started adding everything up with the with the cost of food being donated and, and everything else uh, monetarily donated through the COVID Elvis at hotmail.com. Um, we have exceeded in everything combined with all the, because we've dropped off thousands of dollars in sanitary products down to the uh, YWCA, uh, the um, Community Center in Ancaster, Mission Services of Hamilton, uh, the Kingsway Outreach Center in Hamilton. Uh, thousands of dollars in in, in toiletries, uh, toothpaste, uh, shampoos for programs and all that kind of stuff. And we far exceeded in seven months, total everything combined over $100,000. That is unbelievably incredible. That is just incredible. You know, we've had various people who, after your first appearance here on the show, sent us notes and said, oh, you know, he was doing this. He's a great guy. He's, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and we've certainly heard the joy that you've brought to other people from, from them. What has this done to your life? How does this, how has this changed your life, Cameron? Um, it's surreal. 
to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, you know, myself, I'm a few months away from my 55 uh, year old, uh, 20% discount at shoppers drug mart. So uh, <laughs> for, for me to be, at this that's going to change your life right there, Cameron. <laughs> yeah. 20% off. I you know, 15% is taxes and I'm getting an extra 5% off. That's so, it. But, uh, no, no, for me, honestly, um, um, I'm a pretty humble guy. I come from, uh, you know, just, you know, regular family living on the mountain and, um, we never had extra, but we, we always had enough. And so knowing that there's so many people struggling, it's, it's become a mission for me, basically, uh, to have this kind of value and purpose on this side of life at this point in my life, it's, it's, it's done things for myself, actually. You know, wow. in, 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 in terms of, um, I don't see myself as a hero and I don't see myself as, uh, you know, any better than anybody else. I just, I got an opportunity to do something with a gift that I've been so fortunate to, to have owned my whole life. That would be music. Um, I get to use it for a greater purpose. Um, you know, I can feel good about things at the end of the day, regardless of what's going on. So how can we donate in the tour? Where, where, where can people see you from afar? <laughs> okay. So, um, I, I set up a, I set up a, I set up a email, uh, and a bank account with the TD. Um, it's the COVID, COVID Elvis at hotmail.com where people can make a monetary donation and, and all the money there that's used is used to buy and continue what we're doing. Um, we just, I just went out and bought 50 tarps. So um, people say, what do you need tarps for? Um, when we put these duffel bags together and, and give them to people that find themselves on the street uh, in the inclement weather, you know, cold, all of a sudden mm. it starts raining, they can pull this tarp out and cover themselves. Yeah. And all right. Start, and so the website, that, any way we can go on the, uh, on the on website or Facebook to find out about you? Yes, Facebook. It's COVID-Elvis Food Drive and Basic Human Essentials Tour. It's not a right. last name, so it's easy to find. The the monetary donations, like I said, can be made to covid-elvis.hotmail.com. And today, at 5 o'clock, I'm going to be over on Upper Gage and Mohawk Road celebrating an 80th birthday for a lady that lives in the building. If anybody <laughs> wants to come drop off some non-perishables. And Sunday, I'll be in Burlington at 1 p.m., Gren Allen Drive. These are the last two for the month of March. I was really hoping to get to 30,000 pounds. We're at 2,800 right, uh, 28,000 right now. Um, 2,000 pounds in two days is a lot to ask for, but hey, if you're in the area, drop a can of tuna in the box. COVID Elvis has been with us, Cameron Caton, and of course, check out his Facebook page to find out more. Good luck to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.